0: Is it on? Yes. Okay. So first, I would like to thank James for um, inviting me to speak tonight because he needed to be out of town. And I'd like to thank all of you for showing up. I'm delighted to be here. Years ago, I sat here as well. And also, um, James used to be on the Alameda near Solano. That's a long time ago. Uh, But I live about, I live sometimes two and a half hours away. I live on the northernmost end of the Sonoma Coast so coming here on a regular basis on Thursday night is not an option uh, and I'm staying overnight I wouldn't I wouldn't drive back um, first a disclaimer I am not a meditation master I am NOT a Dharma teacher um, I'm just a yogi like the rest of you uh, doing the best I can on the path but I happened to write a book about someone who was a meditation master, a Dharma teacher, a Pali scholar, somebody uh, that you may or may not have heard of through the teachers that you have studied with and that many of us have studied with. Um, living This Life Fully, Stories and Teachings of Meningra was released a month ago by Shambhala, and it's the first time there is a book about someone who has actually deeply influenced probably everybody here, even though it might be indirect. And I'll let you know how. You'll be surprised. Um, I collaborated on this project with Roger, Roger, Richard, excuse me, Robert Pryor, who's director of the <coughs> Excuse me. the Antioch Education Abroad Program in Buddhist Studies in Bodhaya. And I believe maybe James's son went to that program. Anyway, Manindra taught the Theravada portion of that program from its inception until probably a year before he died. So tonight I'm going to talk about Manindra and... Probably some of you recognize his name, and others may have never heard of him. Um, To our good fortune, he played a pivotal role as a grandfather of the the Vipassana mindfulness movement in the West, especially um, because he was not just um, a meditation master and a Pali scholar, but he was a living embodiment of the Dharma. He actually had, as Ramdas, Ramdas had put it in Joseph Goldstein's first book, he had so thoroughly absorbed the Pali Canon, the teachings of the Buddha, that he grokked it. Does everybody remember that word, grok? He so grokked it. He was so one with the Dharma that simply being in his presence, you could feel it, even if he didn't give a Dharma talk even if he didn't give you meditation instructions. Okay. So uh, those who encountered him got a sense of what it's like when someone actually expresses through his presence the qualities that lead to awakening. However, that doesn't mean that Manindra was perfect. And I think that's one of the reasons why he is such a great model for those of us who have aspirations on this path, and maybe on any spiritual path. He had his own share of quirks and idiosyncrasies, as many people I interviewed told me about. He, was, he just had his own way of being in the world, and he was a fallible human being. He never purported to be perfect to be a saint, to be exceptional or extraordinary or anything. In a lot of ways he was exceptional and extraordinary, but he 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 did it in such an ordinary way that unless you got to know him, you might not feel how powerful he really was in the Dharma. He was not the kind of person who had a booming voice and a big presence. Uh, he was a diminutive, sweet, smiling, cheerful, enthusiastic little man who, um, who didn't emanate that energy or power that some of the teachers do. And for many people I interviewed, mm-hmm. therein lay his power in, in, in that simplicity. So he was not an Arahant. He readily admitted that he had not yet finished the path. Nevertheless, he developed and exemplified the qualities that are essential to awakening. And they're qualities that are available for all of us to cultivate. What I wound up doing was organizing the book according to 16 chapters. And each chapter focuses on one of those qualities. I distilled. Uh, does anybody know what the Bodhipakya Dhamma, Dhamma Vichaya are? Well, the Bodhipakya are the 36 qualities for enlightenment, but when you look at them, you see that along with the ten paramis and the four Brahma Vihara and the seven factors of awakening, all of these, if you look at them, there are repetitions. Mindfulness shows up, metta shows up, energy um, Wisdom, so I distilled everything down into these 16 qualities. And even though a chapter focuses on a particular quality, almost any story reflects several qualities at a time. Because you know when you practice, there's not just one thing happening. You're mindful, and you're expressing loving kindness, and you're being patient with someone, and you're using wisdom, and so on. But I arbitrarily decided, okay, this story goes here, and this story goes there. So before I discuss these qualities and share both humorous and poignant stories, uh, anecdotes that people shared with me, I'd like to offer some background, a context for understanding how it is that we're here tonight and the the whole background uh, or context into which Manindra fits. So I, I really believe that we're sitting here tonight as householders, not as monks because of a series of events that started long ago. But not to worry, I'm not going back to the Buddhist time. I'm only gonna go back about a hundred years. And what happened was, um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, a movement arose in Burma to revitalize Buddhism. And this was in the face of challenges posed by British colonialism and the introduction of Christianity. And what happened was um, some Burmese teachers, like Lady Sa- uh, Lede, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think it's Lady, Lady Sayadaw and Mahasi Sayadaw, whom you've probably heard of. They began to emphasize the personal realization of Dharma in this very life, and the key to this transformation was vipassana meditation, not ritualistic practices. And it was open to lay persons as well as monastics. We are heirs of that early movement in Burma. Because what happened was in 1957 Manindra left his post as the first Buddhist superintendent of the Mahabodhi temple in Bodhgaya. Just a little aside here, For many centuries, many, many centuries everybody thought the Mahabodhi temple was Hindu. So there was a Hindu moth who was in charge of it and earning money from it as a result. But then after the British left and Nehru decided, oh no wait, let me step back a moment. British archaeologists were working on that site. And lo and behold, as they were digging around, they found out, oops, this is not a Hindu temple. This is a Buddhist temple. So Nehru decided the temple should go back into the hands of the Buddhists. And Muninter, who had been with the Mahabodhi society, was chosen to become the first Buddhist superintendent of the Mahabodhi temple since the 12th century. And he really took his job seriously because the place was a mess. And there's a whole story in the book about it. Part of the area was being used as a latrine by some villagers. It was just a mess. And he felt so ashamed and embarrassed that people would come and as pilgrims and see it like this. So he worked very hard to bring it up to snuff and also get it ready for the the Buddha Jayanti, which was the 2,500 anniversary of the Buddha's Parinirvana. Anyway, just a little bit of history, so you know that he, he's not somebody who just came out of the woodwork. This was part of something really big that was happening to revitalize Buddhism. So he left his post as a superintendent. And again, there's a whole story about how this all happened, and it's in the book. And he went to Burma to practice under Mahasi Sayadaw at his center in Rangoon. And just as an aside, at the same time, Sayadaw Upandita was studying with Mahasi Sayadaw. So at that center, one learned Vipassana meditation not through large lectures, but through personal interviews with one's teacher. And each yogi would practice at his or her own pace according to the teacher's advice and supervision. In this regard, the teacher was more of a spiritual friend, what we know as Kalyanamita, than uh, an infallible guru. And Manindra never considered himself a guru. He always thought of himself as a Kalyanamita. And what would happen is you could realize the Dharma or Dhamma in four successive stages, which you might have heard about, And at each point, a teacher would recognize whether you had actually come into that state, or stage. And there was also the understanding that you did not have to experience the fourth stage and become an Arahant in order to be a teacher, to be an effective teacher, anyway. So you can um, still experience the stages of awakening and express your awakening or enlightenment through a distinctive personality. There's um, an expression in Burma that I learned about. And that is that even when the bottle is empty, there is still a smell. And they understand this to mean that even if A person through the stages of awakening is now devoid of greed hatred and delusion there's still a personality and so sometimes there have been misconceptions about how a spiritual teacher should be or what that person should look like or behave like but in this understanding um, you still have your personality, you still have your, your quirks and idiosyncrasies, and Meninger had them, which was hard for some people. He would do things and they'd say, oh, it didn't compute with their image, you know, with their fantasy of what a spiritual teacher is like. Anyway, this model of learning the Dharma, having these private interviews, having the guidance of a teacher, is what Manindra carried with him when he returned to India in 1966 and began teaching in Bodhgaya. Coincidentally, people in Burma believed that in doing so, Manindra was fulfilling a prophecy that anticipated a renaissance of Buddhism and Vipassana 2500 years after the Buddha. When he left Burma, hundreds of people were at the pier or the wharf to send him off. They really thought this was the first step, bringing the Dharma back to India, its place of origin. And then from there to the rest of the world, and here we are, the recipients of that long chain of events, starting in the late 19th century. So Manindra got back to India in 1966, toward the end of the year. And in 1967, Joseph Goldstein arrived in Bodh and met Manindra for the first time. The rest is history. Many of you have probably heard Joseph's stories or read his stories in his books. And then Sharon Salzberg and Daniel Goleman and Ramdas. And Ruth Dennison and Jack Hornfield and Sylvia Borstein and Howie Cohn. And if they didn't meet him in India, they met him in the West. And just about everybody practiced with him at some time. Christopher Titmus, Christina Feldman, and on and on. And interestingly enough, Everybody learned something from him even if he didn't become their main teacher and some of the people I interviewed are in vajrayana or zen or mahayana of some form and they all learned something from Manindra that helped them in their practice and that even um, one person told me even his tibetan teacher honored what Manindra had taught him, because it was so important as a foundation for practicing Vajrayana. So I interviewed about 200 people around the world, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to the many thousands that he encountered and that he had an impact on. Some of you have probably heard James or Joseph or Sharon talk about Menindra and the impact that he had on, on their practice. As you know, he was Joseph's first teacher. So what was it that attracted people to him? Why practice with him? Why study with him? And Joseph uh, wrote the foreword to my book and he says, one of the first things that Menindra said to me when we met was that if I wanted to understand the mind, I should sit down and observe it. The great simplicity and pragmatism of this advice struck a very resonant chord chord with me. There was no dogma to believe, no rituals to observe. Rather, there was the understanding that liberating wisdom can grow from one's own systematic and sustained investigation. This is the quality of Dhamma-vichaya. So this quality of investigation or curiosity was something that Manindra had in spades. Sometimes it drove people to distraction. Um, But his curious nature or this, uh, this quality of investigation was something that he had from a very early age. He was already posing these questions. Why did the Buddha leave the common world when he had all kinds of riches? What had he attained? How did he get relieved from old age, sickness, and death? What is enlightenment? What is Buddha? He was thinking about these as a boy. And it was this yearning to know what the Buddha had discovered under the Bodhi tree that spurred him on to study, to practice, and to experience for himself. And he didn't give up. No matter what obstacles there were, he didn't give up. So strong was his determination or resolve, Aditana, another quality, that he held fast until he entered the stream in Burma. He wouldn't leave Burma. He wouldn't go back to India until he had realized Dhamma. And then, once he had realized that, he decided to stay, and he studied the entire polycanon. This was no small feat. Everybody knows the size of the Bible, right? Studying the polycanon was like having a whole bookcase of Bibles, and it generally took anywhere from ten to twenty years. Manindra studied with so much devotion so assiduously from morning until night just breaking for a meal that he did it in five years. He said it was as though the Buddha were in the room with him while he was studying in Pali because he had already experienced in his practice what he read always made sense to him. So, I said that Meninger was not perfect, and uh, that he expressed the various qualities through his own unique personality. Well, his curiosity was legendary, not only with respect to the Dharma, but for just about everything in life. He was so like the Dalai Lama. If you've seen films about the Dalai Lama where he's tinkering with little clocks and other gadgets and started doing that as a boy. Um, it's not that Manindra did that, but he had this curiosity to know whatever it was, and especially when he came to the West. He wanted to know how everything worked. But back in Bodgaya, one of his old students, who will remain nameless, um, told me that he had just been on an LSD trip and he ran into Manindra after he came down and Manindra insisted that he sit down and describe every detail to him of his trip. If you've ever taken hallucinogens, just imagine what that was like to just... <laughs> Manindra said, and then what happened? Oh, and then how was this? And you know, he wanted to know every single detail. Something similar happened when um, uh, another yogi was with him in Washington, D.C., this might have been on a tour that Mahasi Sayadaw did. In any case, um, this fellow left the Dharma Center and decided to go see a movie. And he came back, and the building was already locked. He couldn't get in. And he didn't know what he was gonna do. So he starts walking around the building, and he sees a light on in Manindra's room. So he knocks, and. Menindra opens the window and says, Oh, come on in, climb in, climb in. And as though it were the most natural thing in the world to do. So he climbs in, and Menindra says, You know, where have you been? And he said, Well, I I went to see this film, this Australian film. And Menindra made him tell everything that happened in the movie. It was Picnic at Hanging Rock. That's just the kind of curiosity he had. And there's. I'm not going to read it because it's a long story, but there's a story in him in here about a trip to Washington, D.C. where um, it was, it's all about getting train tickets and Manindra not understanding how you can get tickets without somebody giving them to you and without paying cash and there's nobody there to collect money from you and using a credit card. and. And he made this guy, he asked this guy question after question after question after question, And, and he said, "Maininja, you've been asking me the same questions at least nine times. What's going on here?" But finally, made him sit down and explain the whole process to him until he understand. He had never seen anything like that in Calcutta or any part of India, but that's how curious he was. Um, And sometimes his childlike curiosity was so great that it tried the energy and patience of his much younger students. Joseph and Sharon both told me this story separately, independently. They took him to the, I think it's called uh, Air and Space Museum. I think it's part of the Smithsonian in in Washington. Menindra had to look at every single exhibit. Hours, every single exhibit. So Sharon decided she needed to take a break. She lay down on one of the benches to take a nap. And when she came to, (laughs) she looks over and she sees Joseph is lying down (laughs) on another bench and then just still going <laughs> looking at all these exhibits. He had enormous energy. Energy, virya, that's another quality um, toward awakening. And he could outwalk his youngest students. It was amazing. He had energy for the Dharma. It just never ended. No matter how old he got, no matter how sick he was, no matter what. If you came in and had a Dharma question for him, suddenly he was awake, alert, enthused, and energized. Even in his sickest times, he had this wirya. Nevertheless, even though some people could get a little tired or a little impatient with him, uh, all of this really made him very endearing, as you can imagine. And one, one man, Joe DiNardo, told me, you know, <laughs> you'd never expect to invite Mahasi Sayadaw to your family reunion, but you could go anywhere with Manindraji. You could take him to Niagara Falls, you could walk through, go through Disney World with him, you could go shopping with him at a flea market. In fact, Monindra loved shop. Does anyone has anyone here heard Kamala Masters' story about Menindra and shopping? Yeah. So this is how I got to know Manindra was I lived on Maui and Kamala and I were have been Dharma sisters for many, many, many years. Menindra used to come and stay at her house. And she was working, she had children to take care of and she was out working and she'd sometimes have to leave Um, Meninger at the house, and sometimes she'd take him with her on errands. So one time, um, Meninger's in the car, he's resting, he's got his eyes closed, and she pulls into the parking lot. And in those days, we had no big box stores on Maui. We had one big drugstore called Long's. And whatever you needed, whether it was... uh, a snorkel mask and fins to go out and look at the fish in the water or it was drugs, whatever. That was the only place you could get anything. So they come in and she says, Manindra, it's okay, you can rest, I'm, I'm just going to go in. And He wanted to know where she was and she said, Longs. Suddenly he sat up in his seat, shopping, <laughs> he, knew, he knew Longs was for shopping, shopping, and he was alert and awake. And went into the store with her. Um, And I got to tell you, I remember thinking, what kind of spiritual teacher is this? Wants to go shopping? It just didn't make any sense to me, because I didn't yet understand what his wholesome motivation was, not just his external behavior, and Kamala had gone into the section where they sell umbrellas and she said Manindra you you said you need an umbrella you want one of these umbrellas and he said no I want all the umbrellas (laughs) and she said you want all the umbrellas and he said yes and he said where I come from the children have so little the people have so little I want to bring something for them So I began to understand that whenever he was accumulating stuff, it really wasn't about greed. um, It wasn't about for himself. It was was another manifestation of his extreme generosity, dana, another one of the qualities. And this, this showed up all the time. People would give him something and he would say, thank you, now I can give to others. It wasn't to keep for himself. But I want to go back to the flea market because um, Ginny, Ginny Morgan, who's in the Midwest, told me this story. Meninja practiced Donna all the time, and as little as he had, he still gave And though he didn't want things for himself, except for books, that was the one thing he would keep for himself, he sought to get things for others because he wanted to fill their needs or simply make them happy. So on on the visits to the United States, he used to cram suitcases full of stuff to bring back to India and distribute among the poor. So one time, Manindra was visiting Barry, Massachusetts, and uh, Ginny and two other people took him to a small market. And I tell this story because it demonstrates that in the midst of any experience, he could be both practical and filled with metta for a perfect stranger. He never discriminated. He included all beings as worthy of his loving kindness, another one of the qualities. So I'm going to read you this story, because uh, when she told me this story, I just thought it was priceless. This is Ginny talking. We went up to one booth where Manindra saw a little piano keyboard for children. Probably one of the kids back in Boggaya wanted a toy. The gentleman behind the table looked like he had had a difficult night and wasn't with it that morning. He appeared tired and kept rubbing his eyes. Manindra held this toy up and said, how much for this? The man looked at him and said, $10. Manindra responded, would you take five? And the guy said, are you crazy? Give it up, I'm not going to do it. Manindra put it down and said, please, I want to take it to the children in India. This man said, ah oh, jeez." hit himself in the forehead with his hand, walked back and forth behind his counter, and then finally got down on his hands and knees and dug around in a box. Menindra was very patient. The guy pulled out two batteries and plunked them down on top of the keyboard and handed it over to Menindra. He said, I don't know why I'm doing this. $5, and I'll throw in the batteries. Then he turned to me and said, lady, I bet you bring him to do all your shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Menindra folded his hands in the prayer position and looked at this man full on and said, may you be happy and peaceful. May you live with ease and well-being. And may you come to know full freedom from suffering. I watched a red flush spread up this guy's neck and into his face. He seemed really shocked. He turned to me and said, lady, we need this stuff. And I said, yes, we all need this stuff. Then a woman in the next booth came running up and said, ah, for crying out loud, it's Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) Because Meninger wore white, And he wore glasses like Gandhi, and he was a clean-shaven head. Never mind that that Gandhi had died years before, (laughs) but this woman, (laughs) anyway. But it just goes to show he was very practical. He always negotiated price. He always checked things. You've probably heard the story of um, in India when they would come to deliver milk. Manindra had a little gadget that he would use to test how much they had watered down the milk, how much was water and how much was actually milk, because he wasn't going to be cheated. He was extremely generous, but that didn't mean that he was going to be cheated. He exhibited all the qualities that lead to awakening, but that didn't mean that he was just going to be a pushover for everything. That's why he was a great model. He lived all the qualities of Dharma in this world, in this everyday life. It was um, and, and quite unique in that way. A great model for Westerners, for us who are lay householders. Menindra also gave according to what someone was willing to receive. And I, I can't help He might not say this, but I will. I can't help but compare his brand of giving with, for example, what missionaries do when they try to force people to accept their religion and convert. And this will show you how he was generous, but with great understanding of the person he was trying to be generous toward. So, in late 1996, Robert Pryor asked Paul Choi to bring some presents to Menindra from Bodgaya to his family's home in Calcutta. Um, Menindra had been too ill that year to teach, so he was with his uh, when I say family, I mean, he never got married or anything. It was his brother, his ne- uh, niece, his um at the time, I don't think his other his nephew was living there, but it was at least with his brother and his uh, niece. Anyway, um, being new to Dharma, Paul had neither a clear idea of who Menindra was nor a great interest in being with him. Rather, he was eager to play tourist in the city. But his unexpected experience of Menindra's big-hearted nature left a lasting impression. And this is what Paul recalls. We chatted a little bit and Manindra said to me, oh, you must stay stay the weekend with me and we will practice meditation together. I kick myself now because if I had the opportunity again, I would take it in a heartbeat. But at that point, I didn't even have reverence for the Dharma. So my thought was, who is this guy anyway? Why would I want to spend a weekend meditating with him? I said, no, thank you. Then he said, You must at least stay the night and we'll meditate. And I said, no, 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 no. He said, okay, at least you must stay the afternoon and we could talk about the Dharma. Again, I conveyed that I wasn't interested. He just smiled and said, okay, well, let me feed you. I remember quite distinctly sitting down at his table and how carefully he attended to me making sure I ate well. I begin to cry every time I recollect this. He kept standing up to serve food into my plate with such kindness, warmth, and generosity." That was the extent of Paul's interaction with Manindra. But he says, it's quite remarkable. As I've continued to explore the Dharma, my love for him has grown, even though I never saw him again especially when I'm on retreat, that memory will come back. Sometimes it will make me laugh and fill me with such joy because I felt and I feel today that that was such an example of his awakening, his selflessness and generosity. There was not a trace, at least not that I could feel, of him thinking, doesn't he know who I am? What I felt was him just doing whatever he could do to serve me. That has continued to reverberate through my life. I make a point of reflecting on that regularly, whether it's before teaching a meditation course, because he's a teacher now, or even going to see my patients, because I'm training as a psychiatrist. I feel very grateful to him." So he didn't try to shove anything down anybody's throat. But he always wanted to give something, and whatever it was, sometimes it was merely a piece of fruit, whatever he could give. Another quality. Oh, I should see. How's, how's the time on this? Um, am I supposed to stop at nine fifteen? I think. No, nine fifteen. No, what? What do you? 9:30. Okay. Um, And then i'll just I'll just talk about um, oh gosh. <laughs> well, let's see what I should uh. the quality of satcha, which is truthfulness or integrity, is a- another one that students found very attractive. Those of us who did not find answers in our birth religions and those of us who had come to distrust the government because of its lies about Vietnam and those of us who in general had given up on the so-called authorities back in the 60s and the 70s. Um, Here was somebody who walked his talk he was authentic. He lived the expression, say what you mean and mean what you say. Sacha is more than not telling lies. It's integrity of being. And it was that authenticity that I think also was so endearing to people and encouraging uh, Tara Doyle, who is now head of the Tibetan Studies program from Emory University in Dharamsala, she used to be in the Bodh program and she said, with Manindra what you saw is what you got. The good, the bad, the ugly. It was such a relief, no artifice. Manindra had no mystique around him. He wasn't one person in front of the curtain and another person behind the curtain. He was extremely accessible and available. He didn't hide behind any veils or any kind of big shot guru persona. And although he traveled the world at the invitation of his students, at heart he was a simple man who lived with humility. It was Manindra's ease of being himself, not trying to live up to anyone's expectations of what a spiritual teacher should look like or how he should act, that also enabled his Western students to be at ease with themselves. Menindra's lack of pretense taught his students that it was okay for them to be who they were. Anybody know uh, Larry Rosenberg? He's at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. <clears throat> this is what he told me. In my years of Zen, I did hundreds of thousands of prostrations. I chanted in Korean, in Chinese, in Japanese. I wore special robes, I ate a certain way, in the Japanese style, in the Korean style. Finally a teacher is saying to me, it's okay, you can just be an American guy. That was not small for me. Having tried all the traditional stuff, I had reached a point where I didn't want to do that anymore. I realized it's enough just to be Jewish American. I don't need to pretend. It seemed superfluous and even a burden. So it was a big step, just wearing ordinary clothes, honoring the Dharma in an ordinary and natural way as I could. Munindra made it okay." And this was something that James told me as well. Joseph talked a lot about Munindra and described his personality, but it was so interesting to meet him I had such awe and reverence for my teacher's teacher. And then meeting him, he was just so naturally endearing, just so himself, it was disarming in a beautiful way. And I could just be myself. He had the courage to be unpretentious, to not be so concerned about the party line or looking good. And Graham White, who occasionally comes to teach, he also said, Manindra didn't have a persona of sitting up there like a stuffed Buddha. He was an ordinary person who wasn't an ordinary person. And it's this paradox of being ordinary and yet not ordinary that's important. He was so ordinary seeming to some people, as I said before, that he struck them as not having power or charisma. But." many people soon learn that spiritual attainments don't necessarily create a certain aura or look. Sometimes they're just invisible. As you know, um, some of you may know, Manindra taught uh, Calcutta housewives, including Deepama. And these were women who were not educated, who were taking care of their family, who could not go on retreat. And the only way they could practice was as part of their daily routine as a housewife. And yet they were able to realize the Dharma in their ordinary lives. And Joseph remembers that as he used to walk with Menindra through the village of Bodhgaya, Menindra would point out residents who had been his students and who had attained different stages of awakening. And Joseph told me, seeing those people encouraged me. Because judging from outward appearances, you could never guess their spiritual attainments. They looked like simple village folk going about their business. I came to appreciate firsthand the often stated truth that realization does not depend on social or educational background. It kept the highest aspirations very alive. It all really seemed possible." Manindra had a phrase. I do not believe in not possible. If others can do it, why not me? And he then conveyed that to the people who studied with him, who practiced with him. One young woman told me, you know how when the geese are flying The head geese, the chief geese, is out in front of the V, and all the other geese are flying because he's taking up the wind in front. And they're just... She said, Menindra was like a big goose up in front, just bringing us all along with him. And a a man from Australia used a a different metaphor. He said, it's like um, when you're cycling, And you get into what he called a peloton. And the person who is in front, again, taking the lead, makes it easier for all the people behind him because it creates what he calls a slipstream. And Danny Taylor said to me, Meninja was like a slipstream. He could just pull us all along with his confidence, his encouragement, with his enthusiasm oh, one man told me that uh, Manindra said, "Oh you must go you must go to Burma you must go to Burma and sit and and Peter said, menindra you're forgetting one small detail I can't even sit for ten minutes you want me to go to Burma and sit on retreat there and, and Menindra was just determined he said, Oh, yes, you can do it, I know you can do it. And so Peter said, well, so just flying on his enthusiasm, we went off to Burma. And no, I couldn't sit for hours on end, but I got through the retreat. It was that kind of energy and enthusiasm and confidence that really pulled a lot of people along and just spilled over. Well, I have all this stuff about his compassion, but I'm going to have to let it go. There's a, there's a great story about, I mean, Manindra was, was compassionate to people you can't even imagine being compassionate to. He was compassionate to a ghost in Bodhaya. There's a whole story about this ghost that was plaguing the area around the temple and, and what Manindra did to um, out of compassion after he found out who the ghost was, um, what he did to appease that ghost. It's a really interesting story. Anyway, never mind all that. I could tell you stories all night about his patience, his mindfulness, his equanimity, his wisdom, his renunciation, his virtuous conduct, and on and on. There are lots and lots of stories. But most important, I think, it was Manindra's seamless integration of spiritual practice and everyday living that really come through for us. He made no distinction. Meditation was not something you did on a cushion, then got up and lived your life. Manindra used to say, you can practice any and you can awaken any even brushing your teeth. You could learn as much from him walking through the bazaar as sitting in a meditation hall. He was so open-minded that it enabled his students to see the breadth of Dharma encompassing everything. This was and is important because it showed people they didn't have to become monks to lead a life steeped in Dharma. They could get married and have children, hold down jobs, be solid citizens of their communities. He created a bridge between monastic life and lay life. And for for us living in the West, this opened doors to the kind of spiritual life that we hadn't imagined was possible before. Although we have some monastic communities in the West now, the greater proportion of practitioners are lay folks. And the possibilities there to realize the Dharma in this very life, just as Mahasi Sayadaw first taught and Manindra passed on to his students, who are now our teachers, continuing this message of hope. The success of this lineage, of this teaching, is right here, all of us practicing, all of us bringing forward the wholesome desire to live a good life, to live these qualities the best that we can. So I thank you for your interest in Manindra tonight. And I thank Manindra and his teacher and our teachers today who have carried forward the conviction that, yes, it is possible. Don't give up, it is possible. And um, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them, and then we could do a little metta before we leave. Is that okay? I know it's getting late. Any questions? Um, We have a microphone. You said you were gonna tell a story about the lady in the cart with the purse snatcher. Oh, I can't, too too many stories. There are hundreds and hundreds of stories. There was another story I wanted to tell, but um, that goes in the chapter. If you're not happy in body, you're not happy out of body. But can't tell them all tonight. Any other questions? Okay, then let's do some metta. Breathing into the heart center, may all of us here be happy and peaceful and free from suffering. May we all be safe and protected from danger and harm. May we all be strong and healthy of body. May we all live with greater ease of well-being. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings know freedom from suffering. All beings in every direction without exception. And may the merit of our practice here tonight be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit